Hello listeners and welcome to the Chosen Brew podcast. I'm your host Ian McNally. This is the podcast where guests talk their way through the six beers that changed everything. And in this episode I'm speaking to beer writer, historian and all-round good guy Will Zabel. It's a cracker of an episode. Let's get into it. A warm welcome to my guest, Will Zabel. How's it going? Very well. How are you, Will? Good, good. Very well. Now, first off, you're a familiar face around the beer scene in Melbourne, um, but tell us what occupies most of your time in the beer scene, because you do seem to have your name crops up quite a few at the end of articles, <laughs> and your face crops up when you're uh, at different I think beer my events. face probably crops up at more bars than <laughs> my name appears on more articles at the moment, but uh, yeah, that, that's probably... A bit sadder. <laughs> but yeah, I, I write for both the Crafty Pint and Froth Magazine. And I guess I have a slight niche for myself in that I'm very history focused regarding beer. Although I've sort of now write about a lot of other stuff as well. I'm, I'm kind of, uh, yeah, I push hard the history a- angle because that's basically I have a degree in history. So it's most of what I know. See, uh, m- I have a confession to make. I, I do also have a degree in history, so uh, this is a very self-indulgent episode on my, my behalf. And as soon as I found out um, that I could get you on, Will, I was very keen to do that. Um, if, so. ever, if ever there was a degree not meant to get you work as well, it, it's a Bachelor of Arts with a focus on history. That That is the thing you do to not get a job, but somehow I've sort of managed to make it work. Yeah, I think we can both speak from painful <laughs> personal experience of not actually ended up in the uh using our uh well actually I do feel you're using your degree much more than I am using mine with your um with, with the niche that you've carved out for yourself in in beer. Now, regular writer on Froth magazine, regular writer on Crafty Pints. Um Crafty Pints is is less opinion and the articles you've written in Froth, do you feel like you can voice a bit more of an opinion in those ones? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, A, my things, my, my writing for Froth is much more historical. I, I mean, it's the only thing I've ever done for Froth, really, is is write articles about history. And Emily Day, who you've had on as a guest before, yeah. and of course the, the editor and... Uh, main person behind the magazine. She's she's great. She she kind of lets me um, leaves me to my own devices <laughs> in terms of what I want to focus on and kind of you know it's it's probably it can it's a fun magazine. Like it's it's you know it, there's there's a lot of humour in it and a lot of people bring it. I actually find that a bit harder, kind of inserting jokes, but I do <laughs> I do I do try hard. Uh, I'm much more used to the sort of dry historical records and books and things but yeah she definitely lets me um leaves me to do to do things the way I want to do them and the approach I want to take which is great and do you ever find do you, do you have you kind of built up a bit of momentum or do you ever find it a bit difficult to think oh, what do I write about next or or you actually you've got a whole bank of things ready to go yeah and you yeah just... it's uh, I mean I've only really been writing for Emily almost a year and a half now so since the start of last year and no I've got I've got I've got it for now I'm I'm fine maybe in two years time I'll be hopefully the content I'm making will still be good but I might be looking at the same things from new angles or maybe trying to be a bit 
inventive. Once you've written the history of Imperial Stouts, you've kind of written it. But, you know, there's other ways to approach these things. Well, this is kind of a bit of a, a misconception of history, isn't it? That it's a fixed thing, that things happened and then you talk about them. But history is quite a fluid moving thing yeah. that changes yeah. every day we kind of uh, progress. So have you? what's been your favourite articles to write? Um, I, I like the very local, like the Australian ones most, because it gives me a chance to actually do a bit more primary research rather than looking at what other people have written. So I wrote one for Froth um, in about October last year about the old Yorkshire brewery, which is in Collingwood. It was um, the tallest building in Melbourne when it was first built, and now it's completely shadowed by these apartments that surround it. It's still there. It's a beautiful old... Uh, a building but uh yeah that was really interesting to kind of think about how much Collingwood's changed over uh, since it was I, I mean the first brewery was built there in 1870 so like how much Melbourne and Collingwood have changed in that period it's just yeah yeah those are the things that kind of interest me because they're you can still see remnants of it at a local level yeah so on that um there's a lot of pubs and developments obviously happening in Melbourne, um, particularly a lot of pubs being lost, uh, historical pubs or historical buildings uh, kind of being lost as a pub, but then also sometimes demolished completely or ad- adapted into a new build. Um, is the renaissance of beer going to save those pubs? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, one thing is we pub, when you talk about like what kind of history pubs are I think very few of them are sort of architectural history where the building matters you're really or for me anyway I'm more interested in the cultural history around pubs mm-hmm. and about how people drink and why they drink and kind of what brought people to those things and there's no way to push back against those changes so the world's changing no matter what and people people don't want to drink in just a place that you know serves white sandwiches with Vegemite like they used to in the 60s and uh, and just drink one beer. So I think it can potentially save old buildings because a lot of these new bars are going into old buildings, but the the classic kind of Melbourne pub is, yeah, it's just taking a different that different shape now. I mean, we're at the Clifton Hill Brew Pub. Like, that's this has been around since the 19th century, now it brews its own beer and it still looks and feels very much like a pub so that's an example of what so, i think that goes against the trend in in many ways and do you think uh, probably one of the hot topics at the moment is um is takeovers is particularly with um you know those uh, brewers coming over had um colby chandler from ballast points obviously they were bought out for a billion dollars but then you've got locally mountain goat bought out little creatures um are we in danger of kind of going back and being homogenized is this going to be a cyclical thing do you think uh talking Uh, historically i i don't i don't think we'll ever go back to just pale lagers i think people's tastes have changed too much and and a lot of those styles like you know porter is a style almost died off and now it's back but there was a lot of different things going on to say why those styles were different i think i i mean you have to be worried about with any market, you know, only having a few producers in any market. And that's not to say that, you know, the big guys aren't going to produce a range of styles and a range of interesting beers and well-made and great beers. But I I think 
a lack of diversity from a kind of structural position will lead it does have to lead to some kind of lack of diversity in the kind of beer styles and yeah that might not be fewer styles but it might be less um sort of less intuitive thinking less less changing of direction less a less nimble uh industry yeah and you talk about those beer styles that almost died off and have kind of uh, been brought back into fashion why does that happen is, if you do know any of the history behind why a particular beer style actually yeah, dies off. Yeah, it's a weird one because cha- tastes always do change, don't they? So why would people in, like, San Diego be interested in drinking, like, a beer that was the beer of the le- London working class, like a porter, but those breweries still make those beers. But I, I think... You know, you've got to, if you're a brewer, you've got to get your inspiration from somewhere and there's there's no better place to get inspiration, arguably, than from history and from these old styles. And, you know, I think there's probably some historical styles, like there were so many different northern German ales and gozers are popular now, but that's because it f- fits well with the, what craft beer people wanted to. There's other styles that occasionally pop up, like, say, Gdynski, which... You can't imagine people, can, you know, maybe I'll eat my words in a year, but maybe everyone's going to be making them. But there's some styles that I think the, do get kind of brought out as a historical reference, but don't, won't ever even reach most craft beer drinkers, mm. let alone go anywhere near the 95% of people who drink beer, who don't drink craft beer. Yeah, they kind of died for a reason. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, potentially. Well, yeah. like... I think Gozers, you know, how they contain salt. That was just a reality of the location that they were dealing with. Uh, no one's to say that, but people were attracted to that taste. They liked that briny quality. Whereas mm. if you came out of nowhere and just tried a beer with that brininess, you'd you'd very comfortably say it was a flaw, I think, if you didn't know what the style was. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we'll talk about... You have six beers, so you're here to talk through the yeah. six beers that changed everything. Yeah. So, was it first off? Was it difficult to choose? Yeah, it was. It was. There were a couple that kind of came out straight away, and I was still sort of moving my list around this morning a bit, and it's difficult to work out how to think about them as well. Uh, but yeah, I got six in the end, and sort of three or four who didn't quite make the cut. Okay, we can talk about those as well. Uh, We'll give them a a little mention. Um, But tell us about uh, First Beer. So this one is probably almost one of the first beers that really stood out to me. And I think it was for a number of reasons. And Two Brothers Grizz, their American Amber, which uh, two, Two Brothers don't often get a huge amount of attention, I think, in the craft beer world. But they make some great beer. They won two trophies at the AIBAs. Last year, uh, last month, sorry, and yeah, but Grizz, so it's, you know, really hoppy, but it also had that malt backbone, and I still vividly remember, like, where I, the first time I tried it and the first time I bought it was at the Wesley Am, which is just up the road here in Northcote, and it had a tap decal that was, like, brown and furry, <laughs> and, and I just remember being, like, thinking, you know, I didn't know anything about beer, I was just like, that is the cool, coolest thing Ever, of course, I'm going to buy that beer. 
And it's not the cheapest bar either, so it probably cost me like <laughs> a ridiculous <laughs> amount of money as a first or second year uni student. But and asking them about it and being like, oh yeah, it's an American amber, and I was like, oh, so it's from America, and they're like, no, it's from, and yeah, just <laughs> all rabbit. those things kind of <laughs> happen to me, and it. I still think about it, and it makes me think about how important like your tap space is, and why it's good. A lot of breweries are moving towards handles and really styling themselves out because. You know, there was there was probably all craft beer on those taps at that time. The other beers were probably Little Creatures and Stone and Wood or something. But the beer that, like, really caught my eye was just this weird little, yeah, brown, hairy thing. And I was like, I don't care how much money it costs. I'm just going to buy that. And it's actually a really solid beer. It's, a, it's, yeah, it's sweet yeah, and, yeah. and nice. And it's, it's Moorish. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I suppose it's one of those beers that, you know, for people who say, oh, they don't like darker beers, but mm. then they try that one and it's nice and fruity and sweet and, yeah, particularly a nice winter yeah, beer. Yeah, but then, then the hop flavor is still quite predominant. And I, I normally find those kind of beers where they've got a lot going on with the malt and a lot going on with the hops pretty pretty hard to deal with. Like, I, I'm, I'm not really into that sort of style, but for some reason, whatever reason, Gris just really worked for me then and still, it's still a beer I... Uh, I, I Bought one for a mate the other day, and I was like, "This is the beer that pretty much, you know, started it all for me." And he was like, "Oh, me too, actually." And wow, we'd, we'd never really spoken about it, but we were both, and now we talk about it all the time. <laughs> and you kind of write about two brothers; uh, they're in Moorabbin. There's not a huge amount of the, uh, you, you're right; they kind of do get left out a bit. I feel like, but the I think they recently brought out a pale ale in the last few months, which was uh, called Payday, I think, which is yeah. So that was really good. champion Australian pale ale that the Australian International Beer Awards yeah. in May, and they had the champion trophy for their mid-strength or low-alcohol a- beer as well. Yeah, and I think uh, they, they've got a really nice venue as well yeah. in the Rabin. Uh, it's a little hard to get to, so it's that's right, understandable. Yeah. But yeah, it's a great... Uh, I haven't been there since they rejigged it, actually. I haven't been there for a couple of years, but... Yeah, I'm a huge yeah. fan of that brewery, but even I sometimes forget about them a little bit, I'll be perfectly <laughs> honest, but then whenever I see their beers and grab one, I'm always, yeah, really impressed by whatever they're doing. So, choice two? Yeah, so the second one's kind of a bit of a uh, stand-in for a lot of other beers. It's I'm kind of cheating a bit by, it, it's a bit all-encompassing, but um, Timothy Taylor's Landlord, classic English pale ale, and the reason... I included that is because I, while I was studying, I spent a semester at the University of Nottingham in the UK, and I don't think that's when I really got that into beer, but just, it was more the process of coming back to Australia and feeling like there wasn't as much choice here that I I kind of started rethinking, or, or kind of just going to different venues but trying to make sure I would go to a venue where like they had a bit of choice because in England I felt like even the pubs that weren't so good you'd still have a cascade you'd still have a real ale you'd still you'd still have a genuine level of choice which yeah I got used to I got comfortable with the the uh bar we used to go to on a Friday night occasionally was so it was called the Dunkirk but we called it the Unkirk because the D had long since like <laughs> vanished. And, you know, it was a flat roof pub. And no, this is like, no joke, it was such a rough place that the guy who poured us beers had a swastika tattoo on his <laughs> oh, arm. No. <laughs> like, this is, this is how rough this... And he was actually a reformed skinhead who... 
Wow. Which is, yeah, interesting in itself. But he was like, straight out of This Is England. Is he like the type of guy you, you think twice about saying, can you just top this up, please? You, you'd, <laughs> yeah. Well, we one night we all kind of asked him about what was going on because the thing that always shocked us was the other bartender was of Pakistani origin. So we kind of always thought, well, it's a weird way to run a skinhead <laughs> establishment. But uh, it turned out he'd uh, sort of done the American History X thing and one time in prison sort of realised the follies of his views and ways. So that's that's, that's a le- very long way of describing why I like uh, Landlord. Is a Timothy Taylor Landlord, yeah. yeah. Well, um, there's a lesson in that about tattoos for all of us. <laughs> they are permanent. <laughs> they, they're very permanent, and it was in a very prominent spot on his arm as well. Yeah, so um, Timothy Taylor Landlord, I think, uh, was in the headlines when Guy Ritchie and Madonna were um, together. Uh, right. And apparently it was Madonna's favourite ale. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I've heard that. I, <laughs> so, yeah, and it doesn't surprise me. Apparently, well, they, they claim it's like the beer that most English people say is their number one ale. Yeah, I kind of actually feel that, um, and I don't know whether you experienced this in the UK, but I actually with the popularity of drinking, having drinking paddles now, and or mm. flights, or whatever you like to call them, that English ales actually perform quite badly when you put them next to um, other beers which are much more powerful because I think English beers are designed to drink for a long time. They're yeah, kind of yeah, like exactly, one of those yeah. where like you, you, ha- you know, you're on your third pint, you want a fourth, and then you want a fifth pint, and they're kind of developed to drink over a period of time. And in that format, you could often overlook an English beer by thinking it doesn't have a, yeah. a, a, a wow factor. But, but you, yeah, if you're pitting it against a beer you're only meant to have one of, then they're, they're a whole different thing. One of my favourite ever descriptions of a, of a bitter, which I, I sometimes pass off as my own, I think, but it comes from Martin Cornell, the great uh, British beer blogger, and you know probably the guy who knows more about the history of beer than anyone else in the world. He says that a bitter should leave you completely satisfied, but still willing to have another one. <laughs> <laughs> so, is it true that like Victoria bitter is not bitter? As it was well, it's a lager. Yeah. So was that? A, a, an English style bitter to begin with, and they kept the name. Probably, yeah. It's, Australia has those remnants of na- the name bitter, whereas America doesn't seem to have that as much. And uh, I think it's to do with the term only really developed in the UK at around about halfway between in the the middle of the nineteenth century, so the eighteen fifties. And of course, what happened in the eighteen fifties in Melbourne is you had. The gold, well, soon after you had the gold rush in Ballarat and Bendigo and Castlemaine. So all these English and Irish people were coming over and bringing the new or slightly varied style of beer, but also the new naming conventions with them. And they really solidified. And then when the Foster's brothers brought refrigeration to Australia much later, everyone had to, because that's what the taste wanted at the time, everyone had to transform their beers into lagers. But they didn't want to lose their names so they they probably only spent maybe three decades as actual bitters, and then they've spent well over a hundred years since as pale lagers. Yeah. So yeah, it's very confusing yeah. for a British person coming over. It is because yeah, um, yeah, it would be because you'd be expecting a really different thing if you ordered a VB at a bar. Yeah, most definitely. I think um, 
probably the, the, my biggest education about VB was uh, the Secret Life of Us when we were getting that on. Uh, oh, yeah. on, on they, they always had. They must have had a really good deal with uh, CUB for uh, everybody to be drinking it in the show. Um, so, th- choice three. Choice three. Yeah, uh, this one. Probably still easily one of my favourite Australian beers. I, I just realised my list is is actually not only Australian heavy, but it's Victorian heavy. You've just you've just heard the one beer that isn't from made in Victoria <laughs> from my list, uh, but that's probably not surprising since it's where I've sort of grown up and become accustomed with beer. But um, oh, sorry, this one's obviously not so. This one's Western Australia, but the rest are Victorian. So feral hop hog. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess when I first had it. Um, and, you know, I'd already had the, the hop hit from Two Brothers. <laughs> I already was accustomed to that. But because it had such such a lean and clean malt profile, it was the first, it was one of the first times, or at least first time I regularly got used to that, like America, those piney and resiny, as well as tropical fruit aroma, um, hop aromas that now is pretty much, I mean, most of the time what you're chasing, isn't it, that? Uh, that new world, really prominent hop aroma. But, yeah, there was a bar I used to go to all the time and it got taken over and I was kind of a bit... And they used to just sell Coopers and stuff, which was fine. I just used to go there because I liked it. But they got taken over and I was a bit concerned at first. But then when I met the owner and he was like, yeah, well, this is what I'm doing with all the taps. And you heard about Feral Hop Hog. And I was like, no, what's that? And, you know, the next week it was pouring those beers. I was, yeah, I was really... Really impressed. Yeah, I remember that being one of the first beers. It was when it first came on the scene. It was so good, and there was nothing really like it uh, about. So when you found out a pub had it on, you were kind of like, "We got to go to this pub." Yeah, yeah. And your friends would say, "What? Why? Yeah. They've got hop hog." <laughs> it's yeah. like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I I remember when Forrester's first beer hall first opened its doors. Um, I went there with some friends and another mate who missed it was like, oh, did I hear that that place sells hop hog for this much <laughs> money? And it was like quite, and we thought it was and was quite a good price for it. And I was like, yeah, he's like, oh, that, that's just where we go now, isn't it? Like, why would we go anywhere else? I can go and drink hop hog. And if I wanted to, there's about 30 other taps <laughs> yeah. I could choose from, but I'm probably not going to. But, it's, yeah. it's it's one of those as well where, where I think um, if if we didn't think we were in a, in a craft beer bubble, then... Uh, when you tell people there's a beer called feral, they, yeah. they kind of giggle. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. kind of, particularly then you say yeah. hop hog. It's quite a ridiculous yeah, yeah, name. Yeah, it is. And so. you forget how ridiculous it is because it's just, uh, it's like such currency in the craft beer <laughs> world. Yeah. It's just, yeah, you, you can impress people very quickly if you buy them a round of hop hog, I think. Yeah, and a very uh, high achiever in terms of the uh, top 100 list. It was, oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty yeah. much... Uh, took out the top spot for all the first years of that and yeah. then uh as yeah i think maybe only recently been usurped as number yeah. one but um yeah that's um actually i think that's the first time hop hog has come on the podcast which i'm quite surprised that actually yeah good yeah because, yeah um, i, I, I kind of thought this would be if this is your seventh episode maybe i'm the seventh person to talk about it yeah but. yeah yeah no so that's it exactly right i'm, I'm actually surprised it hasn't yeah. shown up um before but um so when you're writing about um you know uh, different articles what's your kind of what's your starting point are you have you got a clear 
thing in your mind that you're thinking, right, this is what I want to know and this is the article I'd love to read? Or are you thinking, this is what the readers need to know? <laughs> no, I, I try to keep... It depends on the kind of article, but with the um, fairly historical stuff, I mean, there's two things. One is I don't want to ever write anything that people can just get off Wikipedia mm. because then it's just a whole pointless exercise. And there's actually, you know, Wikipedia is almost always right. And there's a lot of um, interest, lot, lots of good and useful information on it. But you don't, yeah, what would be the point of me just uh, doing something that's already been done? And of course, because it's encyclopedic in nature, there's no room for argument. So, or, or putting, um, I, I like to have some kind of, even if it's a bit, tenuous central theory going on and kind of answer that it's not enough to just be like oh well this is history as it happened because that's not real history as I said and probably the same with you having done a history degree you kind of you know the ins and outs and the the nitty-gritty can kind of not always be as important as the why was this happening or what was occurring one of my old political lecturers used to big big fan of saying if you don't got theory you don't got shit (laughs) (laughs) so he i've always kind of taken that approach with my history articles and kind of been like what's what's the theory in here what's the point of people reading it but i like to not have you can't have that overemphasize the article either you can't go top down and kind of like push over the actual facts of what actually happened so it's good to kind of find out everything you possibly can and then think all right what is what would make a good read and what 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 is a good point what what, what's the point of me doing this and what's the point of someone reading this rather than just googling it and reading someone else's article and what's been the the most challenging article you've you've written has there been one that you've kind of had to revisit time you know leave it alone for a bit and come back and yeah the, the first article i actually ever had published in Crafty Pint was about the history of hop growers in Tasmania and that took me, I, I mean I was doing a lot of other stuff and I wasn't properly writing at that stage so it, it literally took me months like it was published in March last year and I kind of I'd spent cup day weekend the year before in Tasmania thinking about this article <laughs> so it was in my head for a very <laughs> long time, not that I was working on it the whole time but uh, there was... Th- that had some difficulties just because it was primarily about the Shoebridge family who brought hops uh, to Australia. Oh, sorry, she started growing hops in the Duran area. And there's about four of them that are called Ebenezer Shoebridge. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're all from different generations. So even just that um, and, and those kind of basics are the parts where you really need to be like, right, I need to actually get a spreadsheet or something going just to like <laughs> plot the lines of who was alive and who was dead by this point because yeah yeah those are those are sort of difficult ones and so you think um you know we're kind of the idea of your writing is to is to educate i suppose the the, the beer drinker and um do you think we'll get to a point where beer does overtake wine in terms of you know, there's a lot of wine writers. There's a lot of um, you know talk around wine. What do you think? Yeah, you know, it's a tough one because you kind of, I guess, as as a beer writer, you kind of you want it 
to be just as big, but at the same time you don't because you want it to be because then it means more people are reading your work that you put a lot of time into and also it's more likely that you'll have more stories out there and more places you can write for. But at the same time, it's hard to... Wine's a hard thing to just step into and I still think beer isn't. Mm. It's hard for someone to just... And I think a part of it is because there's so many words dedicated to wine so constantly that it can be hard to sort of know where to start or, or, or know what to look for. Sometimes less information can actually be can be better. Yeah. Um, but I think you can do both. I think the, the writing can grow and kind of the focus on it can grow, but still grow in a super accessible way where no one could ever not become interested in craft beer. Mm. And I, th- I suppose it might be the wrong aspiration to have. Uh, beer is different. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, true. As you say, it's more accessible. It's more kind of the, the image of beer is obviously evolving and changing. But it's, it's beer, is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's kind yeah. of got a, a de- yeah. more democratic feel yeah. about it. So, um, well, let's do choice four. Yeah, choice four. So, uh, Bridge Road Chevalier Saison. Um, it was, yeah, it would have almost definitely been the first Saison I ever had, which is one now one of my favourite styles. Um, Bridge Road, I think, were quite big in pulling me into craft beer because I used to holiday up around there a bit and kind of going away for weekends and going to that brewery was really, it was, was really interesting to me and it was, yeah, it was probably one of the first breweries I was ever, like, keen to seek out and kind of make sure I would go to. And I think it also actually introduced me to the Crafty Pint because, of course, it's got such a... The Crafty Pint has such great directory. And kind of ironically enough, considering I now write articles for it, I probably didn't even realise there was, like, a news feature to the Crafty (laughs) Pint. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully James doesn't listen to this. (laughs) But... um, it probably took me about six months to even find out there was a news feature to it because I was just using it as kind of, oh, I'm going on holidays here. Where's this? And the first time I think I ever found it was I was like, oh, I wonder if Bridge Road will be open on this Wednesday I happen to be in the area. Oh, it is. Cool. Crafty Pine. I'll make sure I check back there later. Um, but also, yeah, the beer's obviously fantastic. It's I think it's a um, you know proper tribute to that. Uh, to Saison de Pont, which is sort of the the world standard. And a lot of Saisons go different ways now, and we're seeing much more innovation in that style, which is great. But if you want a sort of classic Australian-made example of that style of beer, then I, I really think that's that's a hard one to beat. Yeah, and they're, they're putting out a lot of experimental um, ones and kind of developing quite a program there of uh, interesting uh, styles. I think I had the Elderfile Saison yeah. recently, which was... D- delicious but uh i think uh i had a similar thing w- as you will where i um was driving to sydney with the family and uh i booked a place in in beechworth and persuaded my wife yeah. that it was halfway to sydney <laughs> which is most definitely not <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but for some reason it's the most logical <laughs> place to stop <laughs> most definitely so um choice five yeah, choice five. Uh, yeah, okay. So, um, Moondog's perverse sexual amalgam, which pops its head up from the brewery every, I think every year, every so often. Anyway, it's a black wild ale. And the reason I sort of included this one is 
because when I first drank it, I hated it, and I was quite like I, I was quite disgusted by it. And I, oh, not disgusted. That's unfair. I, I finished it, but I really had a lot of trouble with it and really didn't enjoy it much. And I had it during a good beer week at the terminus and I think I probably needed like two pints pints of Pacific ale just to kind of <laughs> <laughs> just to get through the the small goblet of what that I had um which was yeah fine but some at some point it would have been two years ago uh, f- me and a few people went went to the brewery soon after that the new I, I, I did uh, the new variety of it had been released. And uh, I didn't really think much about it, but I kind of realised at one point in the night that I'd had like four pots of it, and that was the only beer I drank all night. And I was like, oh, well, only like two years ago I was sort of needing a needing a jug of water just to, <laughs> just, just to complete this, <laughs> and now I'm like knocking them back and not even really expending much thought on it, other than wow, this is a really tasty, nice, tart, sour beer, and. The massive rise in sour beers. Uh, there's kind of, it's kind. I find it kind of a difficult one because if somebody uh, who isn't is new to craft beer and chooses one at, at the bar, they could easily be put off from trying mm. other things yeah, because yeah. it's such a, a shock. I think if you maybe serve it in a champagne flute, people think a bit differently about it. Um, is is that again a bit of a challenge for? Uh, actually how to sell yeah it's, a, it's a tough one if i i was already pretty like into beer at that stage if i didn't have the sort of hop hogs and kind of all these really hoppy beers that i'd loved and and also some really nice dark beers in my in the back of my head and this was say theoretically one of the earlier craft beers i would have had i might have walked away from that and gone well craft beer is pretty out there and not really for me, I might just just stick with the lagers, thanks. But yeah, I suppose at the end of the day, most of the places that sell sours, I think in Melbourne anyway, from my experience, have good bar staff. Yep. And th- that's that's all you need to have. And and as long as your staff can sort of tell people what it is and or give out a small sample or, or, or whatever and explain to them that most of the other beers aren't like that anyway, then it, it doesn't matter if you ever started to see these beers sort of appear at busier places than or bigger places with lots of staff and high turnaround then then that would definitely be problematic but melbourne's got some pretty fantastic bartenders so we're, we're lucky in that respect yeah particularly as well i think that goes along with with the good food scene as well and, and good coffee and all of those yeah, things we have all a, kind of we have an amazing hospitality yeah. scene it's just the reality of the city and it's yeah, yeah. What, why people love it and, yeah most definitely so in terms of um, the beer scene, the Crafty Pint has seemed to have gone from strength to strength. It's kind of, you know, you start off as a kind of a niche um, website for people who are desperate to find a bit more info about things. And, and now you're writing for the Crafty Pint and it recently relaunched as yeah, well yeah. Uh, the, uh, with a new logo and uh, a new look and everything. Um, tell us a bit about what, what do you enjoy most about working yeah, for the Crafty Yeah, yeah. Well, I was... Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I was just a huge fan of the website and, um, you know, one, one at some point, uh, 
they just put a call out for more riders and said, yeah, we could use more riders. And I just was like, oh, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd written a lot of assignments and stuff, like a lot of essays. And um, so I guess I knew how to write, but I'd never done any sort of journalistic style of writing. So I just um, knocked up two articles and said, yeah, I'm thinking about starting a blog. Like this is, yeah, how I write. And it just worked out really well. But yeah, it was such a great, like, it was such a great thing to become a part of to kind of be like, oh, well, this is pretty much my favourite website. <laughs> and then all of a sudden to be writing for it and also writing for it regularly, it's, 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 really, it's really good. But I think, you know, if to, to call... And there are other... There's obviously other beer publications in, in Australia. Obviously, I, I write for more than one of them anyway. But I think to have... To be able to call it an industry, you do need, you know, you need a voice for it and preferably a number of voices. And we do have a number of voices because you need, you know, to be telling people about what's going on and and drawing links between one thing. I interviewed the head brewer of Mornington Peninsula Brewery a little while ago, AG, and he he started out at Mountain Goat. He was their first full-time employee in like 2001 and he said that, you know, one of those things when he left Melbourne and then came back, one of those big things was kind of feeling like there was a more of a community because all those disparate kind of things that were popping up were being able to connect. And I think Crafty definitely came in at that sort of time and um, meant people could know what beers were coming out and when, but then also get the, the hard or the news on, on what was going on and what, um, what was happening and what, what we thought mattered in the industry. Yeah, and I think if it does perform that service really, really well, and and only getting better and and bigger by the looks of things as well. So that you know, that's great for the industry. It's also great for to, for the brewers and and for people like yourself to have yeah. a shop window for for your passion. And, and yeah, the industry is getting more and more complicated as well, which of course it should <laughs> as it gets bigger. But also, you know, the issues of ownership uh, are constantly in it. So it's. It's a really good time to be a beer writer. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the more that happens, the better for us. And even if thing, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just the, the more unclear things become, hopefully the more work there are for writers because um, to sort of try and unpack what's happening and why it's happening and those kind of problems. Now, there are some downsides of being a writer. Probably not so much uh, with the Crafty Pint because it's less opinion. But have you ever written an opinion piece and, and got a bit of backlash online or anything no. like that? No, yeah, people are... I think maybe it's because of the history thing. People are really nice to me. Like, <laughs> it's, Yeah, because I know people get like... Um, people... And I, I even throw in a bit of politics like... If I if I like occasionally I, I wrote an article about the hawk beer and I was kind of I always thought Bob Hawke was a bit like loved by the left but kind of sold out the left wing and I kind of talked about how he you know the reason I pay for university <laughs> paid for universities <laughs> because of him and that kind of thing and I was sort of almost <laughs> expecting a bit a few people because he's such a treasured icon in Australia <laughs> um, but no maybe no one's reading my articles that's the other <laughs> possibility either I'm not offending anyone or no one's reading my articles because I've never received even a lick of um a disparaging comment. I, I I get some feedback, and it's always really positive, which is 
They. Yeah, really nice. Um, from other riders as well, which is... We talk a lot about how collaborative the scene is in regard to breweries working together and stuff, but I, I can't imagine if I was if I was sort of starting out or breaking out in, in music writing or food reviewing that I would have the same kind of support and um, camaraderie that I've received as a... As a stu- as a beer artist, sort of two years into it or, or so, yeah. And uh, I'll I'll take that opportunity to give a shout out to uh, Dave and Luke from Earl of the Time for cross pollinating the podcast as well. So yeah, yeah, even, yeah. even in the world of podcasters, yeah. there's a good crossover there as well. And I think actually one of the best episodes of Brews News last year was when they got Luke on uh, from Earl of the yeah, Time. Yeah, but we kind of say that. Episode. I guess we're all sort of in the media, <laughs> so so of course we think. Um, <laughs> Be a media people talking about sort of nerdier things are good. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, just everyone else enjoys it as well. Yes, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, choice six. Uh, so this one's definitely scaled back from all the other ones. It's Temple's Power Stance Pilsner, which is still one of my favourite Australian pilsners. But I think I, I can't remember exactly when I first started having it, but I would have been at the brewery. They had it on tap for a little while. And I, I was sort of at that stage where I was getting into sours and getting into big hoppy beers and getting into darker, like, you know, getting into the extremes. And I kind of really just lost all interest in lagers because that's what I drank a lot of until the point where I became interested in craft beer. But then having that Pilsner was one that really sort of pulled me back a bit and was like, oh, no, this is a fantastic beer this is a really well made um german style and yeah yeah it just works really well and there's other great ones around as well but that one really stood out for me yeah it's kind of uh it's probably the more unfashionable beer style in, in terms of um probably you know craft beer nerds yeah. It, it, yeah. It, but i think uh mazin from hawkers was at the crafty pint function and uh he said you know all you beer nerds you drink this, say it's the best Pilsner you've ever had, and then rate it two out of ten <laughs> yeah, yeah. because of the style. Yeah, because yeah. it reminds you of those lagers. But yeah. said, you know, if if there is a flaw in it, it shows up um, because it's it has to be nail on. Uh, yeah. yeah, but I actually yeah had a Bolter Pilsner last night, which was yeah. I yeah, was going beautiful. to say, um, well, I'm really getting into Bolter Pilsner. It might have almost knocked uh, Power Stance off its sort of number one Australian Pilsner for me, but. Either way, they're sort of neck and neck, and uh, Hawker's Pilsner is great as well. There's there's some great examples of Pilsners out there. Definitely, yeah, there's there's heaps. And I think it's one that if you uh, say if you ha- if you've had a tasting paddle or something of challenging beers, mm. that it kind of presses the reset button. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, like having yeah, a Pilsner yeah. is like okay, reset. Yeah. Oh well, we uh, for Crafty Pint we did a blind tasting of IPAs. Uh, when, that would have been earlier last year. And uh, we did it at Temple, and as soon as the tasting was over, most people were... Well, no one was going for an IPA, that's for sure, but most <laughs> people were going for the Pilsner or the Stout because they just wanted something, like, so different to what they'd been drinking. Yeah, so um, you've got uh, a receptacle to drink these six uh, yeah. beers out of and also uh, a beer snack to go with them as well. Yeah, sure. So I'm really enjoying my... And I don't actually know how to pronounce it. I assume it's Rastel glass from the Good Beer Week. Oh, well, I got what given one at the Good Beer Week's gala. People who went along would all have one. I'm, I'm really enjoying that. I think it's a great 
great glass. It seems I pretty much drink most of my beer out of it now. It works works for the darker beers, the barley wines, the sours. It keeps a good head retention for hoppier beers. It's yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of a a wine glass it sort is, of style yeah. with a yeah. with a, a deep base and a, a yeah. narrower top, but you can still get your nose in. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a yeah, it's a very well designed glass, and uh, I think. When I brought that home from Good Beer Week and uh, my wife saw it, I was kind of saying, this is how far beers come in Melbourne. Yeah. It's like you yeah. can't, you know, four years ago, you couldn't imagine taking home a, a, a wine style glass yeah. uh, from a beer festival. But I think, yeah, that was a superb glass. Um, and a beer snack. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, um, my beer snack might be more pedestrian than most, but Grain Waves. <laughs> particularly, particularly the the green, whatever the green is, sour, sour cream, cream yeah, and chai. Yeah. That is, that is <laughs> a great. fantastic chip, um, and yeah, it goes well with goes well with most beers, I find. And maybe if you want to make it a bit more decadent, some hummus as well. Dip the dip the chips in the hummus, but yeah, um, can't go past grain waves. Yeah, and also the 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 fact that they con you that it's health, it's practically health yeah, food. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I've never had many friends who like them so i can pretty comfortably <laughs> buy packets of it and not have to worry about not have to worry about other people eating them <laughs> well unlike the beers in your fridge yeah, no exactly. doubt yeah, 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 i know the grain waves will always be safe <laughs> well that seems like a, a really nice note to end on will but thanks very much for uh talking us through your six beers that changed everything and uh have you got anything that's coming up um, no, no, nothing at all. Can we contact you online? Yeah, you, or yeah. Would you like um, to be left alone? <laughs> no. Uh, so I well, I, I don't use I use Twitter a bit, but not much. But my Twitter is just Will underscores Bell, and my Instagram handle is the same as that. So yeah. Excellent. We'll uh, hit hit Will up, and uh, he hasn't had any abuse. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want it, I'm I'm really hanging out for it. So, it, uh, abuse would be nice because then I know people are reading. Yeah, so. a bit more. Uh, yeah, a bit more controversy in those yeah. articles. You need to sneak something. Yeah, into you don't. <laughs> I have thought about it, but at the same time, it kind of goes against <laughs> me to just court controversy. Well, it's been great to talk to uh, a, a a fellow historian person who's yeah. passionate about history and also beer so it's a pretty much a perfect podcast for me will so thanks very cool. much for uh for joining us thanks for having me on it so that was it will zabel writer for crafty pint for froth magazine to name but a few you're sure to have seen his name online at the end of articles if you haven't yet Look out for it. It's only going to get more. We actually recorded that episode, sat outside the Clifton Hill Brew Pub, and Will was telling me that he's actually working on a little project uh, to track the history of that pub, and there's some very interesting finds, so I'm really interested to see what becomes of it because the pub has some very interesting links Maybe things connected with Irish Republican movements, to put things politely. Um, Very interesting goings on there in Clifton Hill. So I hope you enjoy that, listening to that episode, as much as I enjoyed the conversation with Will. Now, on an important note, um, I really enjoy making this podcast, but 
I do also enjoy listening to other beer podcasts as well. So make sure if you're a fan of this podcast and you haven't listened to any of the other Australian beer podcasts, then make sure you jump online and and give it give it a search. Uh, I know one of my favourites and previous guests on the show, Ale Over Time, they've just um, put out a Patreon page. Um, I'm not asking you to put in any money for this podcast, but maybe I will after a I'm almost at 100 episodes. But in the meantime, it'd be really nice for you to throw a couple of dollars over to the L of a Time Patreon page as Dave and Luke there do a brilliant job both in online content and also their wonderful podcast as well. In the next episode, I haven't recorded the next episode yet, listeners, so you'll have to hang on tight. I am so excited for the rest of the year recording and hearing people's beer journeys. I'm also hoping to tee up some interviews in other places than Melbourne. So I really hope that if there's any interstate listeners, and I know you're out there, I see the stats coming through, then um, I'd love to hear your suggestions on who I should interview and we'll definitely try and tap up some people from across Australia and get them involved and hear their beer journey too. Thanks once again for listening to The Chosen Brew. Do your bit and share it on social media. Rate me on Facebook or well, probably more importantly iTunes um, and also share it with your friends. Hopefully I'll see you around and we'll be able to share a beer sometime. In the meantime, do all of those things and I'm looking forward to recording the next episode. Thanks, listeners.